All right, so I'm speaking with Megan Merck today. Hi, Megan. Hi, Leah. How are you? I'm doing really well. Happy day after the 4th. <laughs> <laughs> Happy July 5th. Yes. <laughs> So uh, I could do an intro for you, but honestly, I would love for you to just go ahead and tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do and sort of your approach to things. And yeah, I'll let you take it. Cool. Can I also say how we know each other? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, so like Leah mentioned, my name's Megan. Um, I am a, a trained health and wellness coach who's been sitting at the intersections of behavioral health and emotional well-being for the last six years. Um, I have a national board certification and do a lot of coach training and mentoring as well, um, but also do a lot of intervention design and things with um, different digital health or kind of startup Bay Area companies in San Francisco who want to use coaching. So kind of defining models for emotional well-being, creating measures for it, using standardized measures for it, and then basically looking to prove out the efficacy of coaching in the emotional well-being and behavioral health space, knowing that it's not for everybody, but it can help some people. Um, so for whom it is helpful for, in what ways does it work and, and how, what are the outcomes that we can kind of anticipate from that? Um, and all of that these last six years has come after working with you, obviously, Leah, for a wonderful two years at a previous company where um, we had the wonderful pleasure of being able to listen to each other coach while we were very, very green. So I very much remember coming out of my training program and being in that office and being able to hear you and other people coach. And it was just such a great way of kind of listening and borrowing from people at different times, but then also being able to really hone those skills in such a supportive environment. So that part I also really enjoyed. Yeah, it was a really great opportunity to, I almost want to say a sink or swim. I mean, totally. Either one of us at any given time, I remember having a roster of 300 plus clients and all over the United States from all walks of life, you know, we'd be speaking with someone from, you know, Manhattan, New York City one minute and then someone from some town I can't recall in some state that's, you know, sandwiched in the middle somewhere. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't even know where this little town is. Um and, and then with, we used to Google them. Yes, <laughs> that's right. And then and having to really quickly meet people where they were at. And then, yeah, I, I remember just any time I would feel like I was losing my touch, I'd have the inspiration of five or six or more coaches around me to go, oh, that is a really great way of putting that. I'm totally <laughs> taking that. <laughs> totally. Do you feel like there were many emotional health elements that were already being touched on when we were in that position that helped you when moving more into the emotional health space more specifically? Or do you feel like you didn't get much of that? It really took getting into the new position of being right at that intersection before that you got your, your hands dirty there or really like dug in. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think we can we can say that the company that we worked at together was a corporate wellness company. So there was a lot of programs do, being done for companies in terms of health and wellness coaching and biometrics and other corporate wellness offerings. 
And so I think the biggest thing that I saw there was this very, very large umbrella term of stress management Mm -hmm. and kind of all of the different things that went into that giant umbrella. Um, And part of what I think, you know, we had a limited ability to work with that in that arena, but I think coming into other companies and other places, um, there's been a lot more education around things that are common parts of experiences like anxiety and stress and depression, um, but also knowing that we're not therapists. So how do we use that type of information in the same way we would use information about cholesterol or diabetes or tobacco or any of those other things? So to me, it was kind of a fun puzzle to take a lot of the great structure that we had with like, you know, a client portal and goals and biometrics and measures and quantitative and qualitative data um, and the freedom of being able to set really individualized goals with people, you know, all related to their presenting concern and and the things that they're really wanting to work on and then looking to kind of adapt some of that grounded but flexible structure with new information um, and new kind of, you know, evidence-based information um, related to more of the emotional health experience. So it's kind of like a Rubik's cube of sorts to reorient all of those things, but it's been really fun. And it's been really fun to get to work with people and meet them where they're at with much more of this um, umbrella of emotional well-being, which can, you know, which contains many, many, many aspects within that too. Yeah, absolutely. And I love what you were talking about with the Rubik's Cube style, where it is a bit of a puzzle. When you work in a space that prioritizes tangible shifts or tangible markers, you know, Mm -hmm. did your cholesterol go up or down? There's some ease in terms of operating there. In many ways, smoking was some of the easiest. In my experience, smoking was almost the easiest to work with because it was very clear cut. You were smoking nine cigarettes. (laughs) Yeah, like nine. And then it went to five. Boom. Very clearly a a numerical value was very easy to identify. And it was clear to to see. Things like weight. Eh, now you're getting murkier. Because, well, maybe you did lose or gain. But perhaps, I mean, for me in particular, I, I know that there were folks I might be working with who may or may not have seen the the scale move, but maybe there are all these other benefits, these fringe benefits that they couldn't assign a numerical value to, but were nevertheless really important to them. Totally. And so I imagine things like emotional well-being, now you're in a whole new sphere of that where, you know, the, the, the potential to see shifts that are profound, at least for the client, like when I'm imagining myself as the client and I'm imagining myself working with a coach in this area, I can imagine just how vast the potential is to improve my life, but trying to assign a numerical value that can then be used to validate the validity or the efficacy of the thing has got to be a real challenge. It's interesting because I think that, you know, a lot of the traditional medical model um, is, again, it's deficit-based, it's more negatively slanted, and a lot of uh, therapy research or kind of therapeutic approaches come from a deficit-based perspective as well. Not all do. Some of them are like the newer, what they call part of the third wave, are much more strengths-based, which is similar to coaching as we know. But it's an interesting thing to think about from 
this quantitative perspective where we can use potentially validated psychometric measures such as the depression, anxiety, and stress scale. Um, we could use, you know, a lot of people try to use the GAD for anxiety or the PHQ for depression. And there's all these different kind of pros and cons about what these actual measures get at. Um, but part of what I think is interesting is that for some people, especially in this emotional health space, um, there's so much more kind of invisibility of these common struggles where if you were a smoker or if you happen to have a larger size body, like those types of things can be more evident externally based on how other people see you. Whereas things like anxiety or stress or um, really kind of having imposter syndrome, a loud inner critic, having a little bit more low mood, like there's still so much more stigma attached to those things and so much more fear around kind of like admitting that this is where we're starting from. So it's an, it's a very much a delicate dance in meeting somebody where they're at when a lot of this is like more secret. They're not as forthcoming with this information broadly in their life. And you're really looking to help them have a lot of self-compassion, have a lot of acceptance and also thinking about, well, where do we want to go from here? And what would it look like to go somewhere from here? Um, and I know you know this, right? You can frame a goal as a reduction of something or a growth of something, right? It just depends on kind of how you slant it in that affirmative way. And then you can, or whatever way is like more what the client wants. But then you can also, again, use these validated measures. You can use um, subjective, quantitative, or qualitative data to help show the trend that you're looking for um, based on how you're kind of orienting the different pieces of somebody's goal and vision, if that makes sense. Absolutely, it does. One, I love the word acceptance that you used because that's one, I mean, it comes, it pops up everywhere. And so frequently people, in my experience, get Mm -hmm. a little bit ruffled by it because it ends up being seen as though it's synonymous with defeat. Like just accept it. And so like, well, I guess I just have to accept it then. But it's acceptance is really just about identifying what is. It's not, well, this is how it is, and therefore, dot, 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 I can do nothing about it. It's just more of the ability to say, it's like this right now, and then remove the judgment aspect of it and just sit with that for a moment. Because what many people, I mean, not me, of course, because I'm a special little snowflake and I would never do this. Um, <laughs> I jump very quickly at to it's even if I get to the space where I'm I can sit with it's like this right now. I spent a huge chunk of my life immediately going it's like this and therefore I need and I want to change it. And there was I yeah. I really I mean, struggled with putting a period there and just sitting with that sentence. It's like this right now. For sure. Just like you said, yeah, I always like to clarify that acceptance does not mean complacency. Mm. Um, Acceptance doesn't mean you're happy or you're okay with about how things are. Um, But one of the ways that I try to frame it is it's not that the glass is half full or half empty. It's just that the glass has water in it. And if we can kind of get to that level of neutrally kind of gaining a little bit more of a neutral perspective and seeing things as they are, Um, And just saying how, you know, the glass has water in it, then that can be such a profound place to move forward from as opposed to trying to, you know, take some of the water out, add more water in, hide the glass, like any of these types of things. It kind of just creates a little bit more struggle and a little bit more 
um, strife kind of in the experience, the less honest we can be with ourselves, fully understanding that that is a challenging thing sometimes to be honest to that level. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm fascinated by sort of the evolution of what you're at least what I'm seeing is the evolution of people looking into emotions. So Mm -hmm. we went from, you know, there are good emotions and there are bad emotions. And we want you to have fewer bad emotions. Mm -hmm. And the way and sort of as you're describing, there's a deficit base there where it's like, well, we're assuming you're in the negative and we want you in the like moving toward at least the neutral. And then you Mm -hmm. have this next wave of people saying, well, wait, we can also talk about strengths-based approaches. We can, you know, instead of constantly just trying to move you from the negative up to the average, we can try and engage in ways that move the average up. And then there's this other element, and I don't know which one's coming first, or maybe they're complementary, but then there's this sort of embracing those things that we thought were quote unquote bad and seeing the value in them. So as an example, identifying the upside of your dark side, seeing the value of sadness, of depression, and not in the sense of (laughs) depression is just so much fun and I just can't wait, but getting to the place where we could even make friends with those really challenging aspects of our experience such totally. that, yeah, like I, and I don't know which one comes first, whether it's like, oh, first we identify, you know, distinguish between pleasant and unpleasant, and then we move toward moving more pleasant than unpleasant, and then we realize, oh, wait, the unpleasant was good too, or if that order needs to be switched around somewhere, but the idea of it is just really fascinating to me. Yeah, no, I agree with you, and I think that that's what a lot of people are coming to understand now, and that's actually a big part of Um, kind of a new company that I'm working for where it's not black or white it's not good or bad it's not polarized and it's understanding you know life happens when we can flex between right Life, life happens when we can support ourselves to be able to experience the full range of emotions because that's a huge central part of the human experience that so often many cultures many societies many structures try to have people block right so that kind of adds a lot of the number one not knowing about emotions and how they work and what it means to feel things um but number two kind of accepting the ebb and flow right and accepting the fluidity and accepting that just if you feel sad one day it doesn't mean you're going to feel sad the rest of your life um so sometimes there comes a huge amount of self-discovery and also trust in aiming to kind of ride with it versus um kind of resist it in any way which is again the resisting is is the more common experience and so it's really kind of cool to see how from the growth of, of psychological research overall um, and also these different approaches. And also, you know, we've had it in the, the physical health space too with like uh, preventative care in a huge way. It's kind of seen that, you know, it's not, we can help people to do better no matter where they are. And it's not to say that things always have to be good, but there's so much room for people to be able to learn more about themselves and how to be their own agent, their own support, their own best friend. Um, And that can have so much room when we brought into the fullness of experiences rather than trying to stay in one small section of that spectrum. Mm. Yeah. 
how and I think a lot of it has to do just to say again with like the history of Mm -hmm. western medicine medical model deficit based like diagnoses um all of these things and I know from the coaching side coaching has always been strengths-based and forward-looking and that's kind of very much what we think is core to our approach but I've also really learned over these last six years that around the same time that coaching originated the different types of of therapy theories that originated around that same time were also taking that approach so so often we can say that therapy is diagnostic deficit based focuses on the past coaching is present focus looks at the forward strengths based and and that used to be a kind of a, a binary people would try to use to split the two fields Um, But that's really not true any longer. It really kind of depends from a therapy perspective. What is your theoretical approach or what are the different modalities that you use? And so I think that, again, as coaching grows into the next phase of its kind of professional life, um, a lot of these ways in which we've tried to separate coaching from other approaches just aren't necessarily as clean cut as we may want them to be. So it's an interesting thing to think about how we can continue to have value for our approach and what we bring to the table and not try to compare to other things, but to understand where there are similarities and where there are differences. um, So we can all help people get the support that they would benefit from. Which is a great segue into a question I'd love to hear your take on how would you discern, how would you distinguish well-being coaching, so sort of emotional health coaching Mm -hmm. from therapy? If someone were to ask that question of you, or maybe that distinction has been drawn at the company that you're working with now, I mean, how would you go about describing that distinction? I think it's a distinction in definition, broadly speaking. I think that, um, you know, over these last like six or so years with a lot of the rise of coaching and emotional health or digital health that have an emotional focused um, bent, mental health, behavioral health, right? All of these different sectors. A lot of the time, um, they like a lot of those interventions haven't totally let coaches flex their full skill set. And I think a lot of what they try to do, and this gets at your question of how do you differentiate them, but I think a lot of the time coaches have been seen as the personalization agent for the validated curriculum of a program for anxiety reduction or depression reduction, stress reduction, et cetera, et cetera. So it really isn't a coaching intervention. It's a, it's a therapeutic intervention that has coaches as a part of it. And so I think that a lot of the time, again, coaches can be relegated to these smaller roles of cheerleader, motivational support, personalization, accountability, et cetera, et cetera, versus really thinking about um, what are the things that somebody could benefit from and also what are the things that they need? Because if we think about it from a stepped care orientation where we know that coaches again we don't have the same licensure credential as much schooling like coaches aren't meant to do everything a therapist can do Um, and therapists can do a lot of what coaches can do as well but again kind of from a different usually a different perspective or orientation Um, but I think the way that I always define it or kind of look to clarify within the stepped care frame is there's a lot that I could do, a lot that I can do, but it may be that your needs as the client, your needs exceed my bounds. 
And mm. if that happens, if we're drifting beyond my scope of practice, then it's my role to refer to a higher level of care where somebody would be better able to meet you where you're at. And sometimes that can come when there is um, more specific treatment that needs to happen related to a diagnostic picture or a diagnosis. And we all know that coaches don't diagnose or treat. Um, so if there is something where the coaching approach isn't really getting traction, somebody isn't feeling better, and if they have had, whether it's traumatic experiences in the past, um, other kind of known conditions, potentially OCD or any of these other things, again, a coach wouldn't be able to say, hey, I think you have this condition, you should work with a therapist, but you can see how if that, that client's picture needs more than what you can give, then that would be how I would define it. So a lot of the time it depends on the what the client wants to work on. If they want to process stuff that happened to them in the past, the coach isn't going to be a good partner for you there. Um, if they really want help with a known diagnosis, a coach isn't going to be a good partner for you there. Um, if they really want to better understand what's going on and potentially explore conditions or diagnoses or whatever that may be, a coach isn't going to be the good partner for you there. So I think a lot of the time it depends on what they want to talk about or what they want to work on, where they're coming in from and what's going on at the right time. And I think there can be so much great collaboration within a stepped care framework to be able to have other resources that you can refer to um, and so that the client can feel held and contained and not that they're too much for one or not enough for the other. Um, but just to kind of know that like, needs flex and they change and nothing is stagnant over time so we can work together to find out what would be the right type of care that would best suit somebody absolutely and maybe a hybrid is yeah. the appropriate model for that and many like so it sounds like the word that's coming to my mind in terms of a distinction is clinical like when things start to move in the direction of something very clinical as in i have a clinical diagnosis and i want someone who can really tell me the nuts and bolts of that clinical diagnosis it's like great or if they want to do a specific treatment for that diagnosis gotcha yeah so it's sort of like well that's a fantastic idea let me get you to the person who does that <laughs> well I think of it too Leah I think of it like this like you know we used to work with people who had diagnoses of diabetes mm -hmm. right or had diagnoses of cholesterol heart disease etc cetera, etc cetera. we we were never formally treating them right um we never gave them that specific diagnosis even if their biometrics were high or whatever it was so similarly if somebody like has anxiety or if they have depression if they're experiencing it it's that doesn't preclude me from working with them by itself even mm -hmm. the level of it you know as measured by those different um trans or sorry those different validated measures like it's a, not only a mild or moderate like presentation that coaches are able to work with it really again depends on um working with somebody in a capacity in a coaching capacity versus in like a therapeutic capacity mm -hmm. and what is that need that would or what is the level of care that would best suit the client with where they are and so there seems like uh, so if i were to be in the therapist's office mm -hmm. the takeaway that i may want to have could be i'm just sitting in this space with a person who's qualified has the research and tools to be able to help me maybe dig into the past and like it's only the not solely dig into the past but it's I don't understand why I'm not moving I really want to move forward but I keep going around in circles so I'm recruiting support from someone who has the tools and strat like available to them 
to help me go digging around in that past and get really clear about what is what it is that's holding me back. And then from there, I might say, okay, now that I'm really clear on that, now I want help moving forward. And a therapist can do both of those things. Yes. A coach is primarily going to be focused in the, the so now what question. So Right. And one of the analogies that another coach friend of mine has said before, which I think is good, is if it's almost like if somebody is like stuck in mud. And if they're stuck in mud up to their knees, but they can still get some traction with what a coach can do, right, with like accountability and goal setting and a vision and using different skills and tools, then the coach can have a lot of room to help with getting unstuck. But if somebody is very overwhelmed and stuck in mud up to their chest or up to their, you know, up to their neck, then that requires a different level of care that a coach could provide because what a coach could do ultimately wouldn't be helpful. Um, So from an ethical perspective, that's when it's on us to be able to refer somebody to a different place where they would be better able to get unstuck that way. Yeah, that's a great analogy. And so it's almost like, okay, well, the the tools that I, I don't have the tools in my toolbox to help you with this because my toolbox assumes you would have your hands free (laughs) as an example. And the toolbox that you need belongs, you know, is in the hands of a therapist. And not only do I not have those tools, but even if they were in my toolbox, I'm not qualified to use them. So I, I'm right. going to go recruit somebody who has the tools and is qualified to use them. Totally. And I think that this is where the, you know, there's no shame, right, in not having those tools. And there's no shame in, um, you know, referring up or referring down in these ways. I think a big part, and this is a very very um, big tangent that we don't we totally don't have to take but I think the ways in which these different approaches learn to work together will be really great with therapists and coaches and psychiatrists and psych, you know all of these different things because um, there's a lot of challenge sometimes in working together when therapists can assume that they can do everything a coach can do so why would they need a coach or like the coach can handle like the small stuff I can work with a lot of this and they kind of limit the scope of the coach in that way too Um, but there's there can also be profound collaboration in really really wonderful ways based on what you know what facets you're both working on if somebody's in parallel care at the same time So there's so, so, so much room to be able to do a lot more learning there. And again, continuing to learn about how coaches can best, you know, what are the the qualities of clients or kind of what are the ways in which coaches can really support people in this landscape. So it's been really fun and there's plenty more to learn, but it's been a fun puzzle so far to kind of gain some of those initial learnings and, and looking to kind of base future intervention design off of that too. In my mind, I'm thinking of, uh, like, in terms of an analogy, it like the distinction between, say, a physician and a nurse practitioner. Um, you know, like many, each of these two people often are, there's a huge overlap in what both can do. But, and for a long time, nurses were constantly relegated to, oh, you only do the, you only do A, B, and C, even if you're capable of doing D, E, and F as well. And over time, that has continued to expand out. And there is still a distinction. There is a line that is crossed where it's, yep, and now I need to you know, reschedule you for an appointment with the physician. You've just gone above my pay grade or, you know, whatever. Um, and so there, there seems to be a similarity there in that respect. And it's when there isn't a mutual respect between them, because that sometimes has happened, 
that really things go into disarray. Um, when they collaborate and both parties are really seeing the value of the other, the patient ends up in the best case scenario. And in the same vein, this could be true with coaching, you know, being able to partner together and sort of work synergistically, the patient or the, the client is the one who's going to walk away feel, like with this. I'm, I almost hate to use the word holistic since it's overused, but <laughs> with a really comprehensive of yeah. like a realm or array of yeah. experiences. I mean- there's so many there's so many different types of like collaborative care models that are coming out with like uh, medical homes, care teams, like all of these different types of things. And so it's cool to see how all of that is shifting and changing. And I think a big part of it is just kind of also accepting per your previous comment about how sometimes that's hard um, about like where the growth of the coaching profession is compared to things like the age of um, being a medical doctor or a psychologist or therapy or any of these things, because we are a younger field and a younger approach. Um, and we're kind of in these different phases of growing pains and whatnot. And I think that there's a good kind of healthy discussion about what is the value of coaches integrating into clinical teams and integrating into these clinical models, playing their role. And also what is potentially cons of that, right? What are the pros, what are the cons? Knowing that the coaching relationship, the coaching approach like wasn't designed to be clinical. So on the one hand, if it integrates into clinical teams, and we're kind of seeing some of this with insurance reimbursement for national board certification and more of these um, NPI numbers and all these things, like there's some validation that can come from being put through the rigor that these other professions have gone through before to be legitimized as well. Um, And on the other hand, there's a little bit more you know, murkiness, which is always fun for me to get to say too, <laughs> is if you don't pursue those things, then how do you know that this this works? Yeah. Right. But at the same time, if you have a lot of the the lived experience of partnering with people in their life and doing these things, then kind of pursuing that path may or may not be or may not be as valuable to you. So I think it's it's just always nice to remember too that there is like um, a split kind of in pe- where people think like the next phase for coaching should be or what it could look like. And a a lot of the time these structures are challenging and annoying and they can help with a lot with access to care. So it's another kind of big gray area in that way for sure. Oh yeah. Well, and in terms of being a part of the growth of the coaching field, you've created, like you've now taken out the time and the energy to create a coaching training. Like you went through all that work. What in your mind, like when you're now in the position to be training other coaches, both in the context of the the company that you're working with, as well as the institution that you're creating with a team, Mm -hmm. what is your, um, your vision? When you're, when you're training people, what kinds of things are you training them on? What are you prioritizing? Like, how are you visualizing your part in the expanse of this coaching field? That's such a good question. And I'm having flashbacks of the trainings that you and I plan together for <laughs> our old colleagues in that way, too. Um, and I think, honestly, I mean, I, I'll say that I got, a, you know, we've been coaching for a long time now, about 10 years, a little over 10 years now. And I was so naive when I got into the field, 
in 2010 when I started my training program about kind of what it would be like to work in this this capacity or what that would mean. And I'm really grateful for having received very high quality training at the time by somebody who, you know, was definitely one of the, the um, early, early people within the field, just like I know you did too. And I think that the, mo- the biggest challenge that I've seen in the last 10 years is the word coach has um, grown in application so, so, so much, but the ways in which it's used are the ways in which people mean, like, assume it doesn't mean anything. So, for example, it's hard, you know, being a certified coach doesn't really distinguish you from a quality perspective or um, an experience perspective. And one of the things that's really interesting with, like, the crazy growth of the field is the word coach is put on customer service jobs, it's put on care navigation jobs, it's put on sales jobs, right, mm-hmm. product rep jobs. And I think that the one of the biggest, like, passion fights that I have in, in me is the legitimization of this work. Um, and to know that that comes a lot with how do you train people. So similar to how my training was, what are the evidence-based and evidence-informed theories and practices that you're teaching people? How do you help people to learn conceptual thinking for what's going on with somebody? And how do you hold the coach approach and kind of dance right with them? And we know it's a balance very much of an art form of the actual conversations or the actual work and standing on a really strong theoretical and evidenced, you know, evidence and wisdom foundation. So I think that to me, I call that as a joke. I mean, it's not a joke, but I I call it kind of cheekily. I call that mental gymnastics where we're in these conversations with clients and we're pulling on things based on our instincts and based on on our intuition. And to the client, it's very seamless. Right. But we're not just kind of pulling on nothing. We're not pulling on something that has no basis behind it. We're not only trying to take the positive slant or the motivational slant there. Um, And I've seen sometimes where some coach training programs I've seen online to be a certified coach and it cost eighteen (laughs) dollars. Right. And I, I heard your laugh. Right. Like we study this for years um and continue to study it and continue to learn so the hope um from two sides is for the coach training program to continue to contribute to a strong theoretical oriented you know culturally humble culturally responsive training for people who really want to pursue this work um, and to continue to be very good at it, right? Not fluff, but the really important things. And also I think for coaches as they're in these trainings, the number one things that I've seen that are challenging for people is confidence. Um, It is kind of feeling like you know enough to get going and you know enough and you're kind of building those instinctual patterns of what to do next. And so with this training program, um, what we're really looking to do is to structure it in a way that helps to balance the, the theoretical instruction and practice so that it has the ability to kind of learn information and apply it right away and work with it to help with building that confidence and that conceptual thinking and doing that with something that's also widely missing in coach training, which is culturally responsive care. And how do we think about how do we do that? How do we work with people in those ways and to not be blind to those different elements and the intersectionality of them and the influence of them? Um, So I feel like I'm rambling a whole ton and I will stop soon. But basically, (laughs) the aim of the training program is has 
a strong um, anger for the field of coaching, especially knowing that it's going to be based in emotional well-being specifically as kind of the concentration. But then also for um, the coaches, we really want to structure it in a way, or the trainees, we want to structure it in a way that helps them to walk away with a lot of confidence, a lot of experience, and a lot of instinctual wisdom built up that they can feel you know, ready to take on the work with clients as well. So there's layers to this. The first is, I mean, because at the end of the day, coaches in whatever arena they're operating in, whether it's helping someone in the health and wellness arena, which in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, things that biometrics can put a measure on. So, Mm -hmm. uh, or it could be, I mean, not that emotional well-being isn't part of health and wellness, but, you know, moving more into a more ethereal or abstract realm, whatever the realm is. Biometrics for mental health. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, Or even, you know, like there's also life coaching. So now you can have things like career transitions and so on. It's like there's so many arenas that a coach can work in, but ultimately it comes down to providing, in my experience, really three basic things. Accountability, organization and support and figuring out which to lean on more aggressively or assertively depending on the person you're working with and depending on where they're at in the process. So that's like the the foundational piece. You're coming to the table and you're saying, I'm here to provide a space for you where you get to be the driver in the driver's seat. We say that all the time in coaching, like you're the driver or, but you're the one in charge. You're not in control So you don't get to control everything because none of us do, but you are in charge. You're the one who ultimately gets to determine which direction you want to go into and how fast you want to go and what you want that to look like. And then the coach's role is to make sure that the space is held well. And then the more layers that are coming onto that is, okay, so how do you do that in the context of emotional well-being and be able to distinguish between our ability to hold space and provide tools and resources and when it's appropriate to say okay so i now need to recruit support from someone who's in a different arena like a different arena even though we both will be helping you with this same thing you need tools i don't have and or don't aren't am not qualified to use so that's mm-hmm. another element involved and then there's this next element of are you able to apply the platinum rule not just the golden rule so you know this is a language that you and i hear all the time but sort of golden rule being you know, treat others as you want to be treated, which is lovely. It's, there's nothing wrong with aspiring to that, except the way I want to be treated may be very different from the way you want to be treated. And if I'm your coach, I need to operate from the realm of treating you the way you want to be treated, even if that's foreign to me. And so now that's where you get into that cultural competency element of, oh, am I being aware of and not too blind to <laughs> The, the ways in which intersectionality, so race, class, gender, you know, religion, religion, thank you, like all of those elements come into the fold to influence our experience and our outcomes in all these areas, whether it's, you know, sort of a life coach, your career transitions or emotional health and well-being or quitting smoking or, you know, whatever how are those elements influencing your capacity in these areas? And how do I hold the space for that appropriately, given my limited experience? And when I say limited, I mean, 
I've only experienced life from my one point of view. I've got a very small slice of reality. <laughs> and so I'm our ability to hold a wide space is now increasingly important in today's time. Totally. And I think, you know, I think that one of the things that's great about coaching and um, kind of how it's fundamentally trained is we know that the, the work is about the client. It's not about us, right? So we're, we're kind of trained to be flexible and agile and how we orient or how we lean on, just like you said, those three things. When do we put on that educator hat sometimes if we need to? When do we do a little bit more of the, you know, bottom lining or kind of like the quote unquote tough love or something like that too? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we're, we're, we're trained to, to do all of those things, which is great. But I think what's interesting, especially within this emotional well-being lens, is so much of our emotional experience is subjective, yeah. right? It's not as concrete as biometrics. It's not as concrete as, like, specific behaviors like tobacco, like you said before. Um, so if we're really understanding a lot of this is subjective, a lot of it is culturally informed, a lot of it is um, founded, like, you know, comes from earlier experiences in our life and what are the values of the adults in our lives when we're kids and how do they respond to things and all of this stuff. There's so much of that flexibility and agility that is so powerful to do here, but it also just takes a little bit more of that lens of really looking to understand the current place from the client's perspective and to know that there's a lot of intersectionality there. And we can hold the non-biased neutral seat just like we're trained to do, but we want to just be really open, right, and really um, expansive in doing that so that there can be the self-discovery with the client in, in the driver's seat. There can be the alignment. There can be the pursuing of visions and goals, et cetera, et cetera. But we just don't want to curtail it in any way by um, not honoring the expansiveness that's there. So I think that the cool part about the emotional health work or the emotional well-being work is it's very subjective. There are concrete, you know, sections and areas of, of our model that we're working with that have a lot of research behind them. So again, it's not cat videos on YouTube, which I know sometimes <laughs> people think that that's what coaches do. Um, but it's much more about like really um, owning a role in a new way that is fully allowing of a coach's wonderful skill set that we really want to look and train for. Um, All of this, you know, research, which we could use as any other type of research with putting on our educator hat and really looking to meet the client where they are, knowing that so much of this is subjectively understood, Mm -hmm. right? And and non-judgment and openness to intersectionality and expansiveness there is huge and that it takes a different a little bit in my opinion of a different kind of mindful presence of the coach to be able to sit in that seat oh yeah i mean and i will say one thing that was really pivotal in getting buy-in from for me as it relates to coaching like oh this is coaching okay i'm on board honestly had to do with the fact that oh in this relationship I don't need to be an expert. And in fact, right. some of my best work happens when I'm not because totally. I'm I'm forced to kind of sit on my hands. So, you know, I remember the first time that I walked into a, a, a training session for coaching and yeah, I'm sort of, I, I'm trying to remember how I perceived it or what assumptions I had. I don't even know if I had assumptions. I, 
just was very flippant, but also was very sort of, I don't know, sure, let's find out whatever this thing is. Okay, whatever. <laughs> like, this is a required curriculum in my graduate program. Cool. Coaching. Shrug. And I remember the first time that the instructor, in essence, just did a, you know, before she even launched into this is what it is, this is how we're doing it, it was immediately like, okay, somebody, I need a volunteer. Come on, you know, sit in the hot seat. I'm going to coach you. Totally. And I remember the feeling of her walking me through it as being, you know, sort of the lab rat going, okay, sure. And just the way she held space and just the way, so it's like, oh, she was just asking me questions and then reflecting back what it was that I said. And yeah, she told me that by the end of the, you know, she gave me a little bit of information like, okay, so here's going to be kind of the structure of it. We'll talk a little bit about things that you want to be working on and that you want to see change in. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to just be asking a bunch of questions, kind of getting, making sure I understand your answers. And by the end, the, the, the idea would be you'd walk away with a, you might want to call, I call it an experiment um, because, mm-hmm. yeah, like it's, what I love about the word experiment is there's no way you can do it wrong. You, you're running an experiment and you have a hypothesis that if you engage in this behavior, you know, if you engage in X behavior, Y will be the outcome. Mm-hmm. And it's either going to be the case that your hypothesis is proven or disproven, but either way it was a successful experiment. So it may be that you engage in the behavior and why wasn't the outcome? And that surprises you. And so then you might from there say, oh, well, maybe I need to try a different one. Or it may be the case that you wanted to do X behavior, but it didn't come to fruition. And the reasons were, you know, increase all of the reasons why it didn't happen. And then that too is still a successful experiment where you determined that, oh, it turns out that behavior wasn't as, you know, that that program was not as easy to run as we thought it was going to be. So now you pivot and adjust the experiment accordingly. Uh, I think because I I totally agree with you. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was fascinating to me in these last six years is to learn that therapists have a name for that. Huh? And guess what the name is? It's called a behavioral experiment. <laughs> awesome. So I remember hearing that and learning that and being like, huh? That's what we do all the time. Right. It's all, it's a, you know, smart goals theoretically are a series of behavior experiments, right? Like, and because the coach isn't the expert and they're not leading the way and they're trying to help collaborate and strategize with the client on where they're at and where they want to go, there's a, like, it's all behavioral experiments. And so part of what I think is also interesting with the two different fields is also that therapists have names for things that coaches do that coaches don't know. And this idea of behavioral activation is another one where coaches do that all the time. We mobilize people to take action around things that are going to help them feel accomplished or to feel pleasure and to feel good. And so I think that part of what's also so interesting about all of this um, is for the coaching field is to learn about this stuff that already is proven that already exists and to also be able to have the verbiage for it, right, to help Mm -hmm. with validating our approach and to know that that structure isn't only what therapists do, right? But therapists have a name for it and coaches don't yet, like that name hasn't trickled into the training as much so far. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, and to think too, that what's nice about a behavioral experiment, if we'll use that terminology, is Mm -hmm. that neither a coach nor the therapist needs to be an expert in really anything in that space. Like it's, 
I mean, obviously you want to have the tools and resources to apply, like, you know, in the practice of either coaching or therapy, but I don't have to be an expert on baseball. If the person that I'm working with wants to increase their exercise and they say, oh, I used to play baseball all the time and I miss it and I love it. It's like, great. I don't now need to hurry up and, you know, Wikipedia baseball and learn all the ins and outs of it. I just get to ask questions like, tell me, I get to say things like, tell me more. Yeah. What was that like? Where, what are aspects of that that you could bring into the fold here? And those same approaches would work whether they wanted to play more baseball or play the piano or they, you know, especially if it's emotional wellness, like what is it that you can recall brought you um, either a measure of joy or a momentary pause where things could be quiet for a second? And whatever their answer is, I don't got to be the expert on that thing. Like that in terms of building confidence, which is, you know, when you were talking about helping your trainees who come into your program kind of feel like they walk away with that confidence and the sort of innate wisdom that would be required to jump into the fold and say, okay, I'm going to coach people now. That was my favorite part is, oh, I just need to know some basic skills, And then from there, it doesn't matter what the person really wants to try as the experiment, with the exception being something that's harmful. Like, yeah, I'm going to run the experiment of, you know, doing some physical harm to myself. It's like, no, (laughs) no, not that. Well, I totally agree with you. And I think that this is also the part that's interesting overall, um, no matter, I think, what type of coaching you do is the clients can sometimes be the one that limit you and they want the guarantee, mm-hmm. right? They want the plan, they want the program, they want the guarantee that this will work. And so, and I, you know, as you know, I used to call this the infomercial mentality, although now I think it's like the Instagram influencer mentality mm-hmm. of like this product, this plan, this is the recipe for success, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so much of the time, as I know, you know, like, I don't, I mean, I do care, like you said, I don't want somebody to do something that's harmful for them, or that is in compromise of their values or anything like that. But it's like, I don't really care what you do, I care that you do something. Mm-hmm. So like, let's talk about what that something is going to be, or that seems approachable right now, based on where you are with readiness to change, et cetera, et cetera, you know, any, any number of things. Um, and so I think that that's part of what is really cool about coaching, just like you said, is we just get to um, feel around like the conversation, right? And and think about where is there room to flex or push or pause or hold or mirror or any of those things um, so that the client kind of helps having the ability to define the trajectory of where they want to go. Yes. And in terms of, yeah, that whole guarantee piece, I, oh, I get it. And guarantees are nice. I mean, they feel good. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've had to say to people, though, you know, sure, I can tell you exactly what to do. And what you'd end up with is a prescription that would work for me. Like, that's what my plan would entail. Like, I can, you know, especially because I'm certified as a nutritionist, like, sure, I can tell you what to eat. And what I would be telling you is what I eat. And I can tell you how to exercise. And ultimately, what I'd be telling you is how I exercise. And even if that wasn't the case per se, as soon as the coachee or the client tries to put the onus on me to create a plan for them and stamp a guarantee on it, there's no feasible way for me to do that without me leaking onto it. It just can't be done. Maybe some coach could, but I couldn't. I don't, 
I, I but I also think, and don't you think that that's like, and again, you would never say this to a client, but that's the wrong question, mm-hmm. right? Because it's kind of like, why, why is the guarantee of a plan or an outcome so important, mm-hmm. right? Like, what, what assurance does that bring? Like, what, where is there kind of a gap in, in confidence in yourself? and discovery and trust and and again they don't know if it's a brand new client right you have to build rapport and we all know that that's a really key thing too for them to trust us but I think it's so interesting sometimes because so much of what I would love to do is to flip the narrative around needing help or needing care to investing in yourself right investing in your growth investing in your well-being and to really take it again from for that strengths-based approach but understanding that um, the but what's that one expression like the proof is in the pudding yes. right where it's kind of like we'll we'll see it as we go right we've all had clients who do really wonderful astounding things in ways we never could have predicted and are profoundly successful and so it is a little bit more about like placing the value on the discovery and the mm-hmm. alignment and the experience as opposed to the outcome. Yep. And I think that for a lot of people, that's it. That's like a huge perspective shift. Um, but I think it would be so cool if that happens. Oh, yeah. Well, and that that holds true in any area. And if you really look at any professional who's, you know, hit it out of the park in their arena, uh, I'm thinking of business people who really know how to business. You can talk to athletes who really know how to athlete. <laughs> you can talk to, you know, insert whatever you may be wanting to become an outlier in here. If you talk to those outliers, every single one of them would report back, you have to fall in love with the process and you have to let go of the outcome. So it can't be, you can't be a master of marketing if you don't love the process of marketing. And you have to not just see a flop, a marketing flop as, oh, I failed and therefore I'm clearly bad at it. That has to be as invigorating to you as something that's, in terms of an outcome, wildly successful. You know, like a metric where it's like, whoa, look how many people showed up when I tried this marketing tool. And look how many people didn't show up when I tried this other marketing tool. A true master is the one who gets, who occupies the space of, it's all marketing. And when it didn't go well, that's terrific because that's great data. I'm just all about the data. And so knowing that to be true, that ends up being, at least for me, really helpful when I'm trying to kind of give people the, not give them, that sounds like I'm taking a spoonful of something and shoving it in their mouth like a baby. Like now, oh, here comes the airplane. (laughs) But, you know, reminding people of that can be really helpful in my experience where it's like, if you really want to be an outlier in anything, there is no getting out of falling in love with the process. If it's always about the outcome, it won't matter what you want the outcome to be. You may achieve that outcome, but that outcome won't bring you true satisfaction because you'll just keep moving the goalpost. I'll be happy when I get into Harvard. Well, you'll get into Harvard, and then, of course, you'll be miserable because, well, now it's I, as soon as I graduate from Harvard, I'll, I'll get into, I don't know, law school or whatever. Or if it was Harvard Law School, well, I just need to get into a law firm. Or you get into the law firm, well, I just need to make partner. You make partner. And if it's always about the outcome, in my experience, it will only bring, if not misery, then perpetual hunger, like a a perpetual sense of dissatisfaction. (laughs) Like I'm almost there kind of experience. And if it's more about 
I just want to fall in love with the process. I love learning. Well, then when you get into Harvard, the, the experience of being in Harvard in and of itself will be a joy. And the experience of falling up and down and butting your head up against a professor that's really mean to you, like all of it will just be welcome because it's all about the experience. Yeah, no, it's very true. And I feel like, again, so much of this, right, is subjective. It's yeah. culturally based. It's like the the values of the people we grew up around and how they shape what we want for our life and what we think we should have, should in air quotes um, what is possible for us, right? All of these different things. Mm-hmm. And I think that working within this emotional well-being landscape is cool because it includes looking at things like your thinking patterns and your thoughts and how are they informing your mood and how is your mood informing your behavior and how is that informing your thoughts, right? And kind of seeing all of these different interrelated pieces. Um, but to also know that in the process of learning your values, sometimes that means you're going against the grain when you align with them, mm-hmm. right? And how I think, especially again with like um, commercialization of different things, commoditization of different things, like all of, again, the Instagram influencers and all the products they sell, we have such limited um, visible options for what it means to be a woman in your mid thirties who's single, right? Yeah. And I think what's so cool about this, I said that as an example of myself, but I think it's interesting to think about how do you help people to find something that feels right to them knowing it can shift and change and ebb and flow. And it's, it's not only right because you're copying or you're mimicking what you're seeing, but you're defining it for yourself and you're feeling that resonance right? You're feeling that groundedness, you're feeling that calm, you're feeling that resilience. And you're also like letting the path evolve without like um, over constricting it by trying to have a focus on that outcome. And sometimes again, maybe there is something you really want to do, like train for a race or to um, pursue some sort of class or certification because it, it is that thing that feels right. It feels grounded. It feels calming um, and kind of just like trusting that as opposed to thinking that first you have to do the class and then you'll figure it out, or first you have to do this and then you'll figure it out. It's kind of just being more open to the the presence and the experience of it as it unfolds. What comes to mind is my favorite quote from Howard Thurman um, that, you know, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive and go do that because what the world Mm -hmm. needs is more people who have come alive. And so it's almost like what you're holding space for is, really that you're saying to people, I just want to know what makes you come alive. And my hunch is you don't need to become, a, you know, get a PhD in something to be able to answer that question. My hunch is you've got an answer now and that that answer can change from today to tomorrow. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that, but I bet you, you've got a response for me in this moment. And I want to know what that response is. Right. Or kind of what is the response right now? Like, it doesn't mean you're wed to this for forever. Exactly. Right. We, we want to um, completely normalize the ebb and flow and the fluidity and the agility of everything, too. Mm-hmm. And I think that, again, that that helps people be a little bit more willing to experiment, right, willing to try, willing to do these different things if they know that there's no way of backing out of any of these actions or that they're locking them in a direction that they're not sure of quite yet. Beautifully said. 
So in, if someone were to be looking, you know, let, let's say someone is listening to this and they go, wow, this, this Megan person sounds fantastic. I want more. Because <laughs> like, you do have a training that's now up. It's available. How would someone navigate to you and to the services that you're trying yes. to help people achieve? That's, thank you. That's a good question. So, and I will say that it's a little bit scattered, speaking of plurality, (laughs) these different things. Um, On the one hand, I do have um, continuing education training for for coaches that is um, national board approved for CEUs. And those are on-demand classes. You can take them whenever you want um, and complete the the skill or the quiz that goes with it for the CE credit. And those can be found on my personal website, which is meganmerk.com, and you can click on training. Um, I also have this training program, which is more of a um, introductory training. It's not continuing education. It's really meant to be more of that level one base, really core foundations and skills. And that is through the new company that I'm working for called gray.life. And um, our website there is gray.life slash coach training. And that's where you can find out more information about that program. Um, we're accepting applications now and looking to start in September. So it's coming up pretty quick um, and are really excited for that first cohort. And that first cohort will um, graduates will be eligible to sit for the national board exam as well. So that'll be really cool for anyone who's interested in pursuing that path. Um, And then if you want to work with me as a client, then you can also find me on my personal website, which is meganmerk.com. And that's where I'm accepting clients right now. Um, Gray is is going to be accepting clients in the future, but not quite yet. So that's not available there. But um, I do have more information about rates and, and kind of what it's like to work with me and more of my coaching philosophy on my website as well, which is just my name. So meganmerk.com. Fantastic. And in terms, and, you, and you're open for business. So you're accepting clients as we speak? As we speak. And then also the, the coach training is there. Like I said, mm-hmm. Gray has the training program and in the future we'll have clients. Gotcha. Um, and then the other thing that we have and, um, is a community building that we're looking to do with coaches. Because again, as the field grows, it's important for us all to stay connected and support each other and learn and grow together. So that is another project um, that is called the Coach Collaborative, and that you can find at coach or coachcollaborative.com. Um, and you'll find more information about the different places we have, such as an all-coach Slack. We also have a podcast um, and really looking to help connect people of a variety of types of coaching from all across the country. God, that's incredible. The, talk about being the new pioneer. Pretty soon here, you're going to be, <laughs> when people think of coaching, they're going to be saying, oh, yeah, Megan, oh, you got Megan Merck to come and talk for you? Mm. Wow. Leo, <laughs> well, you're way too kind. You know, they would say that about you too. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe. <laughs> but I don't know if it's kindness so much as, again, it's it, the, your work speaks for yourself. And the way that you've, it's what, again, maybe that's the thing that's kind of nice when, say, Malcolm Gladwell talked about the 10,000 hours. You know, it, it almost doesn't require a person to be a specific kind of person. It's just, when you engage in something that you're passionate about, you're passionate with, or however that right way of segment, when you engage in your in work that you feel aligned with, and you do totally. that for an extended period of time, it's almost like you don't have to be the one who's talking about it. It's being spoken about, and you just happen to be the deliverer of that information because you've been engaged in it so long that it just flows out of you. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, totally. And I, I feel so fortunate to have found coaching at a young age um, myself and at like a really pivotal growth moment in my own personal life. So it feels like to me, again, the thing that feels right, the thing that feels exciting and invigorating is to continue to push um, within the field on all of these different angles. So I'm really grateful to get to be able to do it too. That is so great. Well, I can't thank you enough for the conversation because I'm walking away from this conversation with all kinds of nuggets and I'm excited. So I'm really excited to be able to share it with other people too. Thank you so much, Leah. I've so enjoyed it as well. Wonderful. (laughs) Take care. Bye. Bye.